are listening to the 202 Studio, a podcast series exploring the creative sparks emanating from the District of Columbia. Throughout the series, we'll be talking with artists, humanities practitioners, organizational leaders, and many others, individuals working behind the scenes and in the spotlight, in organizations, studios, and workshops in all eight wards, as we explore the heartbeat of DC's arts, humanities, creativity, and culture. To learn more, visit dcarts.dc.gov. Welcome to the 202 Studio from the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. I'm Jeffrey Scott. Today we're joined by Chris Keeley. He is an award-winning photographer and also a clinical social worker and counselor. Chris, thank you for being with us today. Yes, good morning. So Chris, tell me a little bit about um, how you were a graduate of the Corcoran uh, School of the Arts initially. Tell us a little bit about your story, how you how you first uh, came to be involved with the arts and what led you to study at the Corcoran? Well, um, I'm a son of a uh, diplomat. So I I grew up all over the world. Uh, Jordan, Mali, Greece, Uganda, Cambodia, Mauritius, Zimbabwe. A lot of my parents' friends were artists. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to nine high schools. So I went to uh, the Barlow School in New York, Amenia, New York, and it was a, a small art school. And that's where I guess uh, I started uh, developing my artistic abilities. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, um, I took a photography course in uh, ninth grade at the uh, United States Department of Agriculture open program. Okay. And um, I did a little painting at the Sandy Spring Friends High School where I graduated in 1976. And so photography has been really your primary uh, artistic medium, is that correct? Yes, photography has been my primary art medium. But, you know, going to the Corcoran School of Art, they you take every kind of art course, sculpture, drawing, mm-hmm. painting, design. And, um, you know, after the foundations year, you pick a, a discipline, and I picked photography. But, you know, you they you kind of get confused about what medium you want to go in but i chose photography at the time and so what was it about photography uh, specifically that you call it that drew you to, to select that well um and it may have to do with uh joe cameron who's a photography teacher i took a course with him before going to the corcoran school of art i took it in their open program and he suggested i go full time to get a Bachelor of Arts degree in photography. So it was probably the influence and encouragement by the photographer Joe Cameron that um, got me interested in photography and, and started my career in photography. And specifically, uh, you focused on social documentary photography and um, the book that you that you produced. Um, addict with the, the photographs of of people who were uh, former addicts in recovery. What does does photography allow for that type of work uh, to be better conveyed to an audience than uh, painting or any other type of visual art form? In your opinion, 
most definitely. Um, you know, because with photographs, you can include a, a bunch of photographs in a theme, whereas, you know, with painting, you know, you might have 10 paintings, but they wouldn't, I don't think they would influence somebody socially. Um, photography is a much different medium to express, you know, two, two pictures together could make a different story mm -hmm. than just one photograph, so when you have a bunch of photographs together of the same theme, it's going to, it's going to make a, a more powerful statement. And as you were, as you were studying and learning your art form was, was the idea uh, to, to be a social documentarian, was that always present for you as, as you were studying uh, photography and, and other visual arts as far as, you know, not only what, you know, you have your innate talents towards, but also, you know, what, what you were feeling a drive to accomplish and which medium would be best suited uh, to convey that, as you say. Um, well, in the, in the, in the art school, you're, you know, you're not getting into your own individual theme or thesis until maybe the last year of the mm -hmm. four years mm -hmm. and I did not succeed with landscape photography and my more powerful uh, photographs were of people it was you know after getting a BFA did, that I did the uh, book addict out of the dark and into the light mm -hmm. I spent a year photographing people and interviewing them about their stories uh, to recovery, and it took a while um, with with the book to to find a, a publisher. Is that correct to to pick it up and and distribute it? But I did fifty one people with their stories, and then you know I decided to make it into a book. And um, I really don't know how I got the idea, but looking back, the first person that I interviewed was Dee Dee Ramone, who uh, died of an overdose. But at the time, I think he had about two months off of drugs mm. when I interviewed him, and he was the first of the 51. But, you know, I did the, uh, the, the book, and then, you know, while doing the book, I had a couple of exhibits, and then I, I mailed manuscripts to about 50 different publishers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, each manuscript probably cost me at the time about $30 because I'd have, you know, original prints in the book and it's about a 300 page book. I made individual books oh. to mail to these publishers. And, and what year was this? This was late 80s? Uh, this is uh, 1990. 90, okay. I even mailed it to Research and they spent about two years trying to find funding to publish the book. They were interested in publishing the book. Most publishers had great things to say about the book, but they weren't willing to, um, to, to publish it. And so how did you uh, manage to, to land on that publisher that, that was willing to... How did I finally punish, publish the book? Yeah, to take the risk and get it out there. Um, uh, a mutual friend... Um, he had self-published his own book and um, he researched 
you know, how to how to publish books and how to bind books themselves. Mm. So uh, Bo Sewell eventually um, published the book for me. Okay. And that's kind of fascinating. Uh, nowadays, self-publishing a book has become sort of a common practice for a lot of people. And I, I, right. You know, I think, the, you, mean, you know, yeah. with the whole, the whole technology has changed. Right. And um, in 97, I'm not sure, but uh, Ex Libris Press, um, I published a second book of my own personal story. And I also whittled down my the attic book from 51 stories to 25 stories and the original run of of addict i think was something like 500 copies and and they sold out correct i mean it, that is correct the it, original run is sold out and then he did a paperback version mm -hmm. and then just recently about a month ago he's decided bo sewell has decided to um, reproduce the paperback version. Oh, wonderful. And so, I mean, it's, it's just interesting that, you know, you, you had to eventually sort of take matters into your own hand to get, uh, to get this work out there into the, into the public realm, into the sphere. For, that's, that's correct. And, and once you did, I mean, it was, people took to it. And it flew off the shelves, and you have to kind of think about all those other publishers that were interested in it, but didn't necessarily want to to take the the risk on it. Uh, that's that's right. And I always thought of having an exhibit with the photographs, which which with the actual um, tape recording mm. um, stories. I tape recorded each person, and I thought of having an exhibit with the photograph with the actual uh, tape recording. Now, um, I have a friend who's made half the stories into MP3 files, and I'm waiting for him to give me the other half. So I have about 30 of the 51 already with MP3 files that I have on a, a web page. You can just click on it and hear the original story. Mm -hmm. At the time, I... Um, I just had cheap cassette tapes and I was recording in hotel rooms and stuff and the sound quality is terrible, but I just, you know, I wasn't, I was just trying to do it to get the story. I wasn't right. doing it for recording quality. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that process, that, that the research and the, the documentation of it. Um, how, where did the idea first come and how did you identify the individuals because they're from all across the country. So how did you find them and and make those connections to be able to go and, and conduct the interview and take the photographs? Um, again, it was hard. It's hard for me to remember how I got the idea. But sure. um, so, as I said, the first one was Didi Ramon. And then there was some of my closest friends. And then it's friends of friends. And I originally was going to do the whole book nude, mm -hmm. nude photographs with the stories. So after about the 11th or 12th person, when I've got somebody who their story was quite amazing, I dropped the uh, nude requirement. 
but initially it was supposed to be everybody was supposed to be nude for the uh, the book, which also hurt probably on my chances for publication in mm. 1989. Mm. Were any of the uh, individuals was there hesitation uh, on the the nude requirement? And did it seem to ease up once you dropped that? I'm just saying some some were some. hesitant. Yeah, and I I eventually dropped the requirement uh-huh. when I decided you know what I care more about the story than you know having a, a book of nude photographs and um the the time that it took to complete all all of the the interviews and and the photographs was about how one to two years or so how, how long did it take me to take the photographs to, to to do all of the interviews and do all of the research before putting it together in the book uh it was a year a year and then, and how much, how long was it to actually compile? I also then had to transcribe every story. Sure. And um, I'd probably do maybe one story a week. Um, and again, that developed into this this homeless project I had, mm-hmm. um, where I had an exhibit at the '95 uh, at the Herald Tribune in um, Paris. Mm-hmm. And the publisher of the Herald Tribune wanted to have my exhibit of my photographs. And um, it took her about a year. She originally was going to have it at the Pompidou Center, but it took her about a year to find a venue. And then she ended up on just doing it in the office of the uh, Herald Tribune in Paris. And then Congressman Lantos's wife saw the exhibit in Paris and said, you know, you should do a, an exhibit on homelessness and we'll get the um, Cana Rotunda, we'll get the Speaker of the House to to reserve the Cana Rotunda for two weeks. And so when I knew I had that venue, I then spent a year photographing homeless people in Washington, D.C. So knowing that I was going to have the the venue in the Cana Rotunda, you know, that I decided to do this exhibit on homelessness. And again, that was like a year-long yeah. project as well. So that exhibit at the Cannon building, then that led into uh, 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 a presentation that's that was being used then by the National Coalition for Homelessness, correct? Using some of that um, imagery? So the National Coalition... Um, so when I had the exhibit at the Cannon Rotunda, the congressman also had Carol Fennelly and, um, the National Coalition and some singers and some other things at that event. Mm-hmm. And later on, Michael Stoops, who's now deceased, he was, uh, the deputy director, director of the National Coalition of the Homeless, wanted to use my um, photograph on a um, homeless poster. Mm. And the photograph that he picked was actually a photograph from uh, a Leonard Pelletier demonstration in front of the the capital of of Native Americans with a teepee. And um, he used that image for the for the homeless and then 
he made a video using my images from the Canon Rotunda show in a, a homelessness video that he would show around the country. So let's talk about, uh, so of course this was all, you know, this is, you know, nineties. We're talking about, uh, into, uh, you know, late eighties into the nineties. Um, your, your full-time work of course, though, is, is in counseling and social work. Um, but you're, are you still active in photography as much as you, as you had been? I'm not really photographing for art. Mm -hmm. Um, I have two young children. I have a full-time job as a supervisory social worker Mm -hmm. in child abuse and neglect in Washington, D.C. for the last 20 years. So I haven't really been focusing on my art in, let's say, the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. I also do uh, interventions for free, you know, to help people get off drugs. But my main source of income is my D.C. government job as a supervisory social worker mm-hmm. for Child and Family Services Agency. So let's go back real quick. Um, you were uh, at one time a grantee of the Commission on the Arts and Humanities. Um, and I believe you got that grant in the late 80s. Uh, was that was that grant tied to... Um, the work that you were doing on on the attic book or or another project or or do you recall um i got i got that grant um at the time i had already done the attic book i had already had quite a few exhibits on you know like social themes alienated youth homelessness addiction and i used to have exhibits at the fifth column nightclub Mm. and that management assistance grant was you know the 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 money was used for a a little uh fold-up brochure that i could mail out that had about eight of my photographs on it you could fold it up Mm -hmm. and that's what that management assistant grant was it was an amount of money to go towards promoting yourself as an artist, I believe. Okay. And that's uh, not currently an active grant program that the commission has, um, but I think it's it sounds similar to what we have now for individual artists and humanities practitioners, the Arts and Humanities Fellowship Program, which is funding that can be used for a variety of purposes, like creating promotional pieces um, for their activities or supporting projects or uh, exhibitions that they may have. And stuff exactly. Like yeah. How did that grant that management assistance grant, uh, what, what sort of returns did you, did you see, um, on that grant as far as helping, helping you out where you were in your career at the time as a photographer? How do I see that that grant helped me? Yes. Uh, it helped quite a bit. It helped that you're recognized as an artist. It helped that you won a grant when other people were competing for the same thing. It helped, um, financially to allow me to produce, you know, a a sample of my art to mail out to people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was something like $1,300 at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, sort of to wrap up and close things, uh, is anything else that you, that you would like to talk about or anything, uh, about, 
you know, the grant you only, you know, you're a one-time grantee, uh, and but that you would speak on, you know, the the necessity of public funding for the arts, or the how that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about that already. Uh, but is there anything that that you would like to add, or anything that we? we well, I ju I would just like to add that the grants are so important mm -hmm. for artists to to express themselves and have a vehicle to show their work, to be recognized as an artist, to have that financial backing when, you know, some of the best art you're not, you're not able to sell or generate income from, especially political art. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet it's still very important art within the, the whole context of, of, of everything, even if it's not commercially. So funding for the arts is so important. And I think your story is really, I mean, I think hammers that home because so much of, of your work, you did at your own personal cost that you paid for out of pocket. Um, and, and that's not easy, for, you know, for a lot of people. Um, but it's, I mean, part of the, the, passion and the drive uh, of being an artist who, you know, want to, to tell that story, to make that artistic piece. But as you say, something like a, a, a grant uh, from a, a public agency like the commission can be so beneficial in, in helping to uh, support financially these artists that are oftentimes having to go into their own uh, checking accounts to to make their art for the rest of us to enjoy and also it's important to have artists you know have a say in who gets the grants because those other professional artists know what it what it's like to be an artist and, and the commitment and the the um, dedication and the um, for other artists to mm -hmm. to be on these panels to award grants is very important Absolutely, because I mean, so often when we're in the audience, you know, we see the finished product, but we don't always stop to consider all the, the hours and the effort that goes into the creation of that product, and 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 it's and that's part of the work itself. You know, it's it's not just it's process and product. I think so. It, it's been we thank you for for taking time out of your your morning to uh, to speak with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for finding me, and um, it was it was uh, wonderful to have received that management assistant grant. I mean, it just it just acknowledges your your work and your dedication, and um, it validates what you're doing as an artist to win a, a grant like that. You've been listening to the 202 Studio, a podcast series of the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to the commissioners and staff of the Commission on the Arts and Humanities, the Office of Cable Television, Film, Music, and Entertainment, and special thanks to our mayor, Muriel Bowser, for her support of the Arts and Humanities in the District of Columbia. And thanks to you for listening today. Mm -hmm.